1: Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward radio four. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. Um, in sixteen eighty eight, with a Protestant wind behind him and no naval opposition in front, William of Orange and his Dutch fleet sailed safely into Tor Bay on the southeast coast, and thus began a period of history known, in England at least, as the Glorious Revolution. The story goes that the English, fed up with their Catholic King James II and alarmed at the prospect of a Catholic succession, invited William to come to England and save Parliament, Protestantism and the rights of ordinary citizens. William was cheered all the way to London, and goes, where, with the backing of Parliament and the people, he and his wife Mary were installed as joint sovereign monarchs over England, Wales, Ireland and Scotland. Victorian historians like Macaulay claim that this was the era that defined British democracy, but how much of the spirit of 1688 is enwrapped within our unwritten constitution, where the events of 1688 either glorious or revolutionary. With me to discuss the place in history of that glorious revolution is John Spur, reader in history at the University of Wales, Swansea, Rosemary Sweet, a lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Leicester, and Scott Mandelbrot, a fellow and director of studies at Peterhouse, Cambridge. Scott Mandelbrot, an alliance of the Whigs and the Tories who became known as the Immortal Seven wrote to William in Holland in 1688 and asked for his help. Why were they writing
0: and why were they asking him and why was this not a sort of act of treachery? Well, they were writing because they were unhappy personally with the events that had taken place earlier in 1688, particularly with uh, some of the decisions of James II's government, especially concerning religious policy, but also concerning intervention in many of the institutions of the state, and especially those institutions that were held to support uh, the Church of England and the authority of traditional rulers in both local society and national society. They chose to write to William uh, because William was... uh, involved in British politics over a long period, going back to the early 1670s. He was married to the daughter of James II, who was seen as the true Protestant heir by many of them, and he himself had a respectable uh, role to play in English politics because of his descent uh, from the Stuart line. He was, in fact, not only the son-in-law of James II, uh, but also uh, James's nephew. William was not, in a sense, committing treason, therefore, by being interested in English politics, uh, nor were those who wrote to him. But the people who wrote to him did so, I think, very much with a desire to change the nature of English politics and very much also from a perspective of feeling left out of the way that politics was going. These were not a wholly representative group of individuals. They were people who were uh, losing office, who were being removed, for example, from positions in the army, positions in local government by James, who were worried personally about James's attack on the church. In the case of one of them, Henry Compton, who had been involved in uh, the protest of the bishops against. James's ecclesiastical policy and had been tried by the Crown as a result of that.
1: We didn't quite uh, centre on the notion of James II's Catholicism, which was that the binding factor, their fear of his Catholicism and their fear of the forces of Catholicism. uh, Was that the thing that drove them most of
0: all? Yes, I think so. Um, What worried them most severely was the fact that James... Uh had, in a sense, given an extra twist to the policy of toleration that the monarchy had been pursuing on and off from the 1660s, really against the opposition of most of the political class of England particularly, but also of uh, the other kingdoms. And James's twist was to forward especially the... Catholic religion to which he had converted, to which his wife belonged, and into which the child with which his wife became pregnant in 1688 uh, would be born, raising the prospect of a Catholic heir and a continuation of this Catholic policy. Um, Catholic policy threatened the individuals such as those who wrote to William uh, because it seemed to undermine both their faith in the Church of England, which they'd been brought up and which regarded, in many cases, the Pope as Antichrist, and their position in society, uh, which James's policy of furthering the place of Catholics uh, through appointing Catholics in the army and at court uh, seemed to undermine by removing the prospect of promotion for loyal Protestants. Thank you. Um, Can I ask you... um...
1: Whether you can tell us a bit about the Tories and the Whigs, um, John. Whether they, what what did they stand for then, uh, and is it was it very peculiar that a few of them should join together in sending this invitation to William of Orange? Well, it was essential
2: they joined together because one of the important points about this invitation is that it's asked for by William. William wants a representative sample of the English ruling elite to write to him, saying, please intervene. So so he engineered it? He engineers it. There's an orangist conspiracy, as it's called. There's a conspiracy organised by William's agents in England, which is, to a large extent, responsible for easing William's intervention. William came to help his allies and to help the English because their liberties were under threat. Their parliament was under threat, their succession was under threat. That's the way he plays it. Going back to your question, the the real problem about Whig and Tory are their labels which constantly mutate. They're not set in stone. And one of the real difficulties are that the Whigs and Tories of 1688 are not the Whigs and Tories that first emerge in the aftermath of the Popish plot and the exclusion crisis at the beginning of the decade, nor are they the Whigs and Tories of the 1690s the period after the Glorious Revolution. The Whigs and Tories of 1688 are really the people, as Scott explained, who represent the political nation, the aristocrats and gentry who run the country and who've, between them, agreed that there's only one group of people who shall be sort of frozen out of the shares of political office, and they're the Roman Catholics. And under a series of legislations passed in the previous uh, two decades... Catholics had been excluded from office. Officially their religion was banned, but in practice many of them were allowed to uh, secretly worship or privately worship. But what happens, clearly, is that James comes to the throne intent on removing those bans on f- public worship for Catholics and those restrictions on their access to office. And he tries to get the, r- the laws that restrict their a- Access to office repealed, and when he can't get the laws repealed, he asks, uh, he begins to basically subvert the laws himself by dispensing individuals from them.
1: How far, as I asked Scott, how far is this uh, opposition to Catholicism something that is deep in the uh, personalities, in the character, in the history of the, the, the men involved, the immortal seven, as it were? And how far is it a camouflage, uh, a sort of handy camouflage for the fact that they were, they were losing office, they were losing authority, they were losing access
2: to the king's ear? It's deep. Uh, I think it's a a taproot of most political action in the 17th century. Anti-popery is one of the great themes that runs through 17th century history. Why it's so deep is difficult to explain to a modern audience. One reason, clearly, is to do with the strength of the historical myth that's built up about England and its Protestantism. Another reason is to do with the idea that where popery first arrives in its wake will come arbitrary government, authoritarian government. And it's that kind of inability to really disentangle the two, Catholicism and arbitrary government, which means that if you discern one, you discern the other. And that almost everybody involved in the Glorious Revolution did fear that Catholics, if they were allowed freedom of worship, would use that as a first step to becoming the dominant and then the only religion, they would, in effect, subvert any toleration they achieved and use it for their own ends to become the dominant power.
1: Um, Rosemary Sweet, does James II suffer from what could be a perennial Stuart problem of absolutist instincts? Uh, Is he trying to rule the English in the way that he envies Louis XIV ruling the French?
3: Well, this is a question which historians have recently Discussed in some detail in that some people would argue that James was never intent on absolutism, that he was simply trying to secure a specific end, and as John has outlined, that was greater toleration for Catholics. but whatever the real case may have been, the perception was that he was intent on absolutism and that Louis the Fourteenth was his model that there were plenty of people who were aware that there were had, were and had been links with the French court, that Charles II, of course, had been involved with the French in the negotiations in the secret treaty of Dover. And as John was outlining, this inextricable connection between Catholicism and absolutism was something which most observers would have been very aware of. And James's actions did seem to smack of absolutism. He was trying to manipulate Parliament. He was trying to pack Parliament so that it would return MPs, which would be favourable to his policies, which would enable him to relieve the Catholics. He was being authoritarian in revoking charters, which previous monarchs had granted. He was building up a standing army, which it was feared could be used to impose his will, as Louis XIV had been doing in France. And all the time, the English were being fed with rumours, for example, from the French Huguenots who were leaving France after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685, and were building up this kind of connection between absolutism and Catholicism. So whatever James II's real aims were, this was the perception, and certainly Stuart monarchs did have a very authoritarian view of government, that they weren't tyrants, they would never have um, behaved in a tyrannical manner or would never have wanted to, but they did believe that they were divinely ordained by God and therefore had absolute authority and would use it.
1: So, in a way, James II raised the prospects of two ancient enemies of England as it saw itself. One was Rome and the Pope takeover, the other was... France, and the French, with whom English had battled for literally hundreds of years, that was part of it. But what kind of state is James himself in in 1688? After all, William builds a fleet, gets a huge loan, and patiently builds a fleet. His agents are all over London, so one assumes that James had some intelligence of that. Um, um, what? How does he see it coming? Does he see the danger coming? If not, is he the only one who doesn't see it coming?
3: He's certainly seeing the danger coming by the late summer of 1688 and this is when he sets in train a whole series of measures which try and undo the changes of the last three years that he suddenly suspends all the arrangements for the meeting of the parliament which would have um, returned a majority very much in his favour and he suspends his plans for um, revoking the borough charters but it all creates hopeless confusion and is too late. And by this time, the has, the invitation has been issued to William and people are aware that there is a crisis emerging. And it does seem that his qualities of leadership declined during the late autumn of 1688. And he, he lost his nerve. And, he, and after William landed, he completely panicked and a series of fatal misjudgments because it wasn't a foregone conclusion that William's invasion would have succeeded at all and his previous record as a leader was a as actually being a fairly competent and astute leader but he lost his nerve and that enabled William to take advantage of a sort of vacuum in authority.
1: Before we move on to the Glorious Revolution, what it uh, what it, what it uh, marked and what it entailed, let's just finish, finish this story. It seems, uh, Scott Middelbert, uh uh, on paper, quite easy. William gets what Napoleon never got, a favouring wind, which wafts his fleet across the Torbay. The wind changes one day and we have the famous Protestant wind that brings him over. He lands and he takes two months to get to London, which is sort of the length of an election campaign, really. Um, there's a bit of a scu- uh, scuffle around Salisbury, but James flees. As, um, uh, he doesn't meet with what could be called serious opposition uh, of any sort.
0: Could you uh, tell us why that is? Well, it's quite true that William lands relatively easily, joins troops who've been raised for him in the West Country, and as Rowie suggests, that also um, James loses his nerve, and therefore uh, a commander who ought to have been feared um, collapses in front of him, flees to London. He was indeed ill um, and suffering from some kind of. Uh, nasal infection, also from, I think, some form of nervous collapse, perhaps. But the key thing is that although James had been building up the army uh, and also, indeed, the navy in this period, he both expected an invasion to come from somewhere else, uh, not unsurprisingly, given the direction that the winds had been blowing in for much of the period prior to November. And he didn't count on the fact that most of his senior officers were going to defect to William, and that was the key factor really Try in to transforming the churchill
1: defected, isn't it the john churchill defected. you thought that with the name churchill with that sort of person <laughs> to defect
0: <laughs> well he he did indeed defect and that was in some ways both the decisive military factor in the invasion and i think one could fairly say perhaps the decisive military factor in churchill's uh, decisive factor in churchill's subsequent military career since he makes his name uh, because of his ability to defeat French generals rather than to win battles under their command, which would have been the situation had he remained loyal and defeated William's invasion. It does look like a relatively bloodless coup, but it very well might not have been, and William clearly landed with the intent of fighting a war and possibly a war that would have lasted for some time. He was fortunate that Louis XIV, who might have been expected to come to the aid of his ally, uh, James, uh, had just committed himself heavily in central Germany and therefore couldn't invade the Netherlands, couldn't send help to England. By 1690, Louis is able to do that, and there is a war which William has to fight quite seriously for the possession of his kingdoms but that war takes place in Ireland rather than in England.
1: John Spur, do you think that when William launches his fleet and gets to England, gets to Torbay, he's got his eye on the throne, he thinks he will become king?
2: No, I don't. I, I think it's a moot point when that realisation strikes him that this is possible. Um, many people think it, it really turns on... James's first flight on the 11th of December, when James first leaves London, but is unfortunately caught by some <laughs> overzealous kind of dog. Because uh, William wanted him to get out. Yeah, basically, William was hoping he'd disappear from Lightly the Lightly guarded yeah.
1: palace yeah, on the river absolutely. with boats waiting to take that, him to France. I mean, and...
2: What happens the first time? James is nabbed by some seamen at Faversham, brought back uh, because they think he might be a Jesuit. They're not sure who he is, because obviously this is the 17th century. You don't actually. if if he's in disguise and know what the king looks like necessarily but he's brought back and then moved again to Rochester where he's as you say left uh, with the doors open and the guards sort of lightly sort of uh, dispositioned but just picking up a point you made earlier about the the length of this campaign and the parallel with an election campaign William brings with him a printing press and one Mm -hmm. of his important tactics over those months in November and December is winning the hearts and minds of people He launches a very extensive propaganda campaign with three declarations and it's got to be said some bogus declarations are also circulating, promising all sorts of things.
1: I just think it's rather funny. William the Conqueror, when he comes, brings his own castles, sort of uh, prefab Mm. castles and William of Orange brings his own printing press. (laughs) Absolutely.
2: It's one of the things that William is very astute in the ways of propaganda and always had been. He'd interfered before in English politics at this level of propaganda and now he was using this to devastating effect.
1: Can I just ask you, Rosemary Sweet, briefly, before we move on to this Bill of Rights, um, do you think this was more an invasion than anything else? We read from Dutch sources that London was full of Dutch troops, and we've talked about Torbay, and Scott has said, look, he could have had a big fight on his hands, and he might have been in trouble, uh, and so on and so forth. So was this m- more an invasion? Just because the fight didn't happen doesn't make it any less of an invasion?
3: Yes, I think... That's a very fair way of looking at it, and it certainly wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the Dutch support, the the Glorious Revolution is something which it is impossible to understand fully without looking at the wider European context. And um, what we have to think about is why the Dutch were willing to support William. William didn't have troops and ships of his own right. He was merely a stadtholder in the Dutch Republic, which didn't give him any p- powers equivalent to a monarch. He had to have support of the uh, Dutch and particularly the um, boss in the Amsterdam stock market who actually put up the loan which would pay for the invasion and it wa- if William hadn't had substantial support the, it would have been much less likely that the um, military leaders who Scott referred to would have defected because there wouldn't have been chances of their succeeding against James II.
1: Okay, well I spent a bit too long on that so let's get on to uh, 1688 uh, uh, James II is considered to have abdicated because he's pushed off to France. if They don't try to bring him up. They say he's abdicated, which legitimates, in their view, the kingmaker's view, William and Mary, William, nephew of James, and Mary, daughter of James, to succeed. And in the Whitehall Banqueting Hall, where Charles was first was executed, a bit of unfinished business goes on, and a Bill of Rights is read out to them. Now, what rights... Uh, can you give us the essence of the importance of those rights? And what were they supposed to do? They listened, but they weren't asked to sign it, they weren't asked to agree to it. In fact, William took not the blindest has been a notice of it. But what, uh, what was that for, and what did it signify, Scott Mandelbrot?
0: Well, in a way, it was for uh, confirming many of the things that mattered to the governing class that had led the revolution. But that had mattered perhaps in a way which drew on a language of political protest and resistance to monarchy uh, that some of that governing class found distasteful, so that it stressed, for example, the importance of the monarch listening to the subject's grievances. It stressed the necessity of the monarch abiding by... Legislation and removed from him the right to suspend that legislation, as James II had done. It didn't, however, include general statements about religious freedom of the kind that William himself might have wanted. It included some rights that might seem slightly surprising to modern ears, such as the right of Protestant subjects of the Crown to bear arms in order to give them, perhaps, the freedom to resist their government if it behaved in a way that they found unacceptable. So it was a curious amalgam, really, of rights which were very commonly held to be important by members of the political class, and some rights that hinted at a much more radical view of the role of people in government and a much more conditional view of the position of the executive. And that, of course, is why William found some of the things he was asked to say slightly disturbing. Uh, Rosemary Sweet, do you think this
1: Bill of Rights is key uh, for the uh, constitutions that follow and the, the moves that follow for the next, uh, in the long 18th century? And if so, what is its, what's its key elements?
3: Um, I wouldn't... Say the Bill of Rights itself was key for future constitutional developments. The Bill of Rights was a statement, which, as Scott said, laid out a series of principles which uh, Englishmen wanted or believed should be upheld, and which they hoped William would observe. And we're observe. very much talking about
1: Englishmen here, aren't we? Because yeah. Ireland was a different matter, in Scotland was a different England matter. And Scotland and Scotland is, made because Ireland a... and Scotland were different matters. Yeah. Scotland
3: made an entirely separate agreement. What was crucial for the future constitutional development was really the fact that William had embarked on this war with Louis XIV, which Scott mentioned earlier, and it was this which necessitated William calling Parliament regularly because he had to get the money to finance the war. But Parliament had refused to award William customs next excise for life. They did not want William doing a repeat of what Charles II had done, which was to live off a customs revenue and never call Parliament. So they ensured that the civil list was not sufficient to fulfil all his needs. And so this meant that William would have to recall return to Parliament every year in order to raise taxation. And it was this which enabled Parliament to assume a greater role in English constitutional development. And it was that rather than any statement in the Bill of Rights which actually led to the development of parliamentary monarchy of the 18th century. And William, had he been able to, would have happily ruled about Parliament, as indeed would George I. But monarchs were not able to because of uh, financial settlement.
2: Surely, Rowey, one of the problems about the Bill of Rights is it legitimates the revolution. Without it, people would not have bought into the revolution. It's designed as a great fudge, a great compromise to make people accept this change of of dynasty, well, change of, of ruler. And it underpins all those later decisions to fund the war. I mean, I can see why people nowadays try and draw a distinction between the Bill of Rights, which in many ways is a backward-looking document referring to all the errors of the Stuart kings over the 17th century. But equally, it's designed to, as it were, allow everybody to see something in the revolution with which they can identify and share.
3: But does it? It n- is a temporary fudge, but very soon after the consensus is fracturing and there are plenty of dissentient voices so I would still argue... But that, revolution
2: that principles, the idea that you're standing up for the revolution...
3: It's something which actually becomes important rather later, in the 18th century, rather than in the 1690s.
0: I, I think it would be difficult to claim that either the Bill of Rights in England or the claim of right in Scotland was a truly inclusive measure, John. Um, it creates rather... <laughs> uh, uh, both both uh, pieces of legislation create... Uh, categories of people who are still excluded from their societies and both of them marginalised people who had taken perfectly respectable political visions on the events of 1688 including positions that might but in have any revol- allowed the revolution to go ahead. But in any
2: revolution there have to be people well, the losers. The point is you have to also fashion some kind of compromise which will include as many people as you possibly can. And the whole business of the abdication and vacancy resolution, the idea that the throne is vacant rather than that James has been deposed, is absolutely crucial to allowing Tories to accept that the revolution is part of God's plan. And And the act of toleration,
1: which comes a year later, uh, uh, fits into this, um, even though it doesn't go as far as the Unpassed Act of Comprehension. But the act of toleration is
0: part of this, isn't it? Scott Mandelbrot. The act of toleration is certainly part of it, and it's a curious fact that uh, this revolution, which in a sense was caused by uh, religious intolerance to some extent, uh, brings in a new monarch, William III, who is in fact probably more keen on toleration than James II had been. James II had allied with the Protestant dissenters because he was desperate for allies. William III wanted toleration for the Protestant dissenters because he didn't see any reason why they should be persecuted. And that was a threat, numerically and politically, well beyond the scale posed by the very small numbers of English Catholics whom James II was planning to promote. And this is one of the reasons, I think, why um, the revolution settlement doesn't actually settle many of the major questions of British politics and produces two two or three decades of political ferment Uh, which mean that the idea that the Declaration of Rights has solved everything in 1688 is a difficult one to sustain. William has great difficulty forming governments in the 1690s and behaving in the way in which he would like to behave towards Parliament, which is very much the way of a powerful monarch, partly because the principles for which he has uh, stood are principles which many of those in Parliament themselves find it difficult uh, to accept. Rosemary Shee, do you think the
1: idea that, the, that these, uh, the Bill of Rights and the Act of Federation at that time embodied ideas of liberty and enlightenment, which, uh, as it were, serviced uh, England for the next 120 or so years uh, well?
3: At the time, I don't think it had anything to do with enlightenment. Um, liberty, yes, the liberties of... Um, Englishmen to held uh, parliament and that it certainly was securing liberties in that sense. But the whole association with Glorious Revolution, with toleration, with values which are associated with the Enlightenment was something which was retrospectively imposed. Just and as
1: Locke was retrospectively associated yeah. with it, although it had very little to do with it at all. Yes, time.
3: exactly. That it became very easy in a hundred years so in a hundred years time or so to look back at the revolution and read into it values or ideals which people now cherished in the later 18th century and the 19th century, and project those back into the 60s. But that's very interesting. That
1: it, it's interesting itself, isn't it? Although they didn't specifically say the things it was said to have stood for, yet it stood for things that people lived by. I mean, Walpole was criticised uh, because uh, he, he, didn't, uh, he, he wasn't really following the Glorious Revolution and so on. It became something else, didn't it? It became very, very useful. And yes. it became a liberalising, an enlightening, uh, enabling force.
3: Uh, well, I don't know about enlightening force and I'm not even sure about a liberalising force. But We're it's talking certainly narrow
1: terms, but yeah. I, would, I would argue that, but you're the historian.
3: Um, it certainly became extremely important as a p- form of political rhetoric that when political outs wanted to criticise the political ins, what you said was that they were betraying revolution principles because the revolution was held to have established parliamentary monarchy and the liberties of freeborn Englishmen were held to reside in the continuance of parliament, therefore anything which imperiled the revolution settlement and the balance of powers was something which was extremely dangerous. And so, retrospectively, the Glorious Revolution became a kind of ideal which could be wheeled in to attack those who held power or were deemed to be um, manipulating power in a way which was unconstitutional.
0: Mandelberg, would you like to comment on that? The ideas of liberty and property which dominate mainstream political debate in the 18th century are not the same as the ideas of liberty and property that were held by... Radical Whigs who had looked to the Revolution as a way of changing the nature of English society, and those included men like John Locke. Their ideas are taken up very much later in the 18th century and continue to be, there continues to be throughout the 18th century a stream of criticism which looks to the Revolution as having, in some sense, been unfulfilled. On the other hand, there is a very conservative interpretation of the Revolution, which I think does answer to the description that you've given, Melvin which is to see the revolution as having changed English society for the better by bringing it back to its true nature. And that true nature is rewritten as a result of the revolution in a number of important ways. Most importantly, I think, in the way in which the idea of toleration, which doesn't always mean what it sounds like it means, but nevertheless some sort of broadness to the English church comes to be a defining element in the politics and government of the church and the relationship of religion to politics, and therefore, thereby to take out some of the tension that had dominated 17th-century treatments of that issue. But on the other hand, that happens largely because of the success, the political success in the church of men who support the, re- the revolution and the exclusion from preferment of its opponents... So there is always a dimension of conflict, even where there seems to be ironicism and general agreement. As John
1: Spur said earlier, it's very difficult to get a grip on the uh, depth and the ferocity uh, and the uh, uh, axiomatic nature of religious feeling and religious Mm -hmm. intolerance at the time. But can I just ask, before we move on, this this phrase, glorious revolution, is one which brings a smile to contemporary faces now weary with sort of uh, (coughs) writing off... uh, so much of, uh, so much positive about the British and English past, but do you think it could still in any sense be called the, the Glorious Revolution, John Spur?
2: Well, it could be, if you take into account that it's... Well, this, again, is, is a contentious point, that it is relatively bloodless, that for people like Macaulay, looking back from the 19th century, it's the precursor to the revolutions, as they see it, of Catholic emancipation and of parliamentary reform at the beginning of the 19th century... In other words, they see the glorious revolution as enabling England to avoid the bloody French Revolution of 1789 or something like it. So the glory resides in that, the compromise and the fudge, the realism, the pragmatism, if you like, which perhaps enables us to overcome, uh, in England and Wales at least, this this problem with a, a, a monarchy religion was totally unacceptable. And then it's... Compromise nature allows constant reinvention or reinterpretation. There are people quoting it like Wilkes in the 1760s, 100, almost 100 years after the event, who think the Glorious Revolution stands for the kind of platform that they advocate, and they advocate reform of the franchise. And there's nothing about the franchise in the Glorious Revolution. It is not an issue in 1689. So, in other words, it is constantly reformed, this myth, this powerful myth... That Scott's just, just spoken about, and becomes really an important linchpin. It becomes used, obviously, against Parliament. The great threat in the 18th century is Parliament, not kings, not over mighty kings, but corrupt parliaments. And it's used against parliaments. In other words, it's used against a different kind of target.
1: So you can see why it was a glorious revolution in England and Wales. It wasn't so glorious if you're an Irish Catholic, though, was it, Rosemary Smith?
3: No, and well, Ireland and Scotland are areas where the glorious revolution was extremely bloody, that there were um, conflicts and extremely heavy mortalities in both countries. And in Ireland, of course, is where the legacy has most poisoned subsequent history. From the
1: Battle of the Boyne.
3: The Battle of the Boyne, indeed, and the Siege of Derry and uh, the other conflicts. And as Scott was saying earlier, it was a conflict which lasted for uh, nearly three years, and then the aftermath was considerably protracted and involved the expropriation of large numbers of Catholics, their total exclusion from all kind of political life. And it secured uh, Protestant ascendancy in Ireland but at uh, considerable cost and it secured uh, division in Irish society which, although the manifestations of this division didn't actually become apparent until the later 18th century, the nomenclature, of course, is one which refers right back to the Battle of the Boyne, the Orangemen and the Alsterman were the supporters of William of Orange. And in that sense, I think that's one of the reasons why the Glorious Revolution and its tercentenary wasn't celebrated very visibly at all in Britain, that it would have created far too many tensions. In um, modern British society, to have started recalling the events of 1688, 89, and William of Orange.
1: Is it true that we're, there's a dimension to this that which we haven't got time to spend a great deal of time on? But, on, but we can refer to it that we've ever looked so far, and that's the that, that William of Orange uh, brought a, uh, e- an economic uh, implant to London from. Holland, the stock exchange, the ways of raising and manipulating money, which was a great uh, re of uh, uh, of
0: the city economy in London. Is that true? I don't think it's true that William of Orange brought it. Um, I think it is the case that in the 1690s there's widespread development in uh, the commercial practices and uh, financial practices of London. But isn't it on the London. Dutch model? On the Dutch model indeed, but on a model which some people have been trying to develop based on Holland well before William. What William does is allow uh, people to have um, both the opportunity to develop this, people who have come back from the Netherlands in some cases, but also uh, people who look to the Dutch model uh, who felt excluded by James. And much more importantly, William uh, gives these returnees, also exiles like the French Huguenots and so on, the opportunity to make uh, financial gain, partly by loaning money to the government because of the war. It's really the war that creates this, and in the sense that William brings the war, he creates it, but only in that sense. And yes, it does copy Dutch models, but it's very quickly linked into a sense of resentment against aiding the Dutch and a view that, uh, amongst many people in England, that the moneyed market is something uh, which is hostile to some of the principles of the revolution itself.
1: Did these two, John Spur, did these two interact? Did, they, as it were, glo- did the glorious revolution get a boost from the fact that uh, there was this economic uh, change... Uh, Very much so. ..about that time, a few yes. years later?
2: Yes, because what happens is that the landed interest, as they're called, the basically the estate owners... The Agrarian Irish Socrates. Yes, they're paying for the war. The land tax, which is a swinging tax on a scale that England had never experienced before underpins the war effort the moneyed interest the people in the city, the stock jobbers and others who are earning as it seems to many onlookers money from manipulating money in other words from strange and as it seems to many people inexplicable methods they become regarded as almost war profiteers they become synonymous with the war and it's P- um, extension. People think they're dragging the war out to profit themselves, to enrich themselves, at the cost of the aristoc- aristocracy and gentry. So it's, it becomes deeply divided as a as an issue, really, because one of the problems with the war is that it's paying for it is a political um, touchstone. You know, which side do you stand on? Rosemary Sweet.
3: Well, I think one's also got to take into account that there was ongoing economic expansion anyway, which would have happened irrespective of the Glorious Revolution, that England's commercial economy had been growing steadily from the 1670s onwards, and the navigation laws of the 1670s and 80s had enabled... Um, commerce to expand and that was why Charles II had been able to rule that Parliament the increased revenues and customs had given him so much more money to play with and there were huge amounts of money floating around in London looking for investment and this is why we have so many joint stock companies, so many people willing to invest not just in the national debt but in other schemes so it's a combination of a peculiar economy enforced by war and a period of rapid economic growth like of which England hadn't experienced. And the combination of these does create an extremely volatile, dynamic society in London. And this whole stock-jobbing um, financiers' money, moneyed interest business. It's something which is very London and which is quite a limited duration as well. It's not something which lasts for many years into the 18th century after, 17, after, well, after the South Sea bubble in 1722. It's a um, syndrome which is already b- becoming normalised, if you like.
1: And the Bank of England's
0: created in this period too, isn't it, Scott Mandelberg? The Bank of England is is created by uh, a group of financiers in in 1694. Yes, It really, initially as a as a scheme uh, for loaning out money uh, in order to finance the war effort. But do you, but, you see these
1: these as mutually we've got very little time mutually reinforcing these financial things set in place and the the ideas set in place of the Bill of Rights, the Act
0: of Toleration? They're mutually reinforcing in the sense that they allow the government to survive and to win the war eventually. Without that, there would have been major change, I think, in Britain. To what extent they really last as a way of reinforcing one another through the 18th century, I think, is harder to say for the reasons that, that Rowey has given.
1: Thank you very much. John Spur, Scott Mandelbrot, and Rosemary Sweet. We'll be back next week with uh, Literary Modernism. Thanks for listening.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4.